Broadband, we need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. You know, the federal government has many layers, and we don't always think about how various departments and agencies impact our lives. In today's show, industry veteran Doug Dawson joins me to dissect the role of the FCC in determining the future of broadband in rural America. Doug is founder and owner of CCD Consulting that works with hundreds of telecommunications companies across the U.S. Listen in particular as Doug discusses what the FCC might focus on under a new presidential administration. And, quite interestingly, the corner that the FCC has painted itself into regarding broadband speed definitions. Here's my conversation with Doug Dawson. And thanks for tuning in to another episode. Uh, I'm excited about our guest today, Mr. Uh, Doug Dawson with CCG Consulting. Doug, welcome to the show. Oh, good. Good to be here. Now, uh, before we get into our uh, very interesting topic today, tell us a little bit about uh, CCG Consulting and uh, what all you guys do there. Sure. Uh, I'm the president and founder. We've been around now. It's getting about 25 years. Uh, we're a full-service consulting firm. We do, you name it, engineering, regulatory work, raising money, business plans, back office billing. So we do a little bit of everything. Uh, we've probably, we are, we've been home-based now for 20 years. We moved our folks home out of offices. And so uh, had the same core of people working with me for over 20 years. So we are a very tightly knit company who really likes doing this stuff. We've had over 1,000 clients. Uh, since we started the business, so we know a little bit about everything in the in the industry because we have so many interesting folks that we work with. So, so this whole uh, work from home thing with the distributed workforce and all that the pandemic has forced upon a, a lot of companies to adjust to you 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 were already there way ahead of the curve, huh? Well, interestingly, this was back around two thousand. We had a whole lot of folks in our offices, and we got better broadband at home. In those days, hmm. we we had a T1 that were 10 people were trying to share in an office. And at home, we could all get one megabit per second broadband from DSL. It was like, let's all go home. And so, you know, it, it, broadband was actually the thing that drove us out of the office. And that was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. What about that? So, and, and you have folks based all over the country now, right? Yes, sir, we do. Well, you have... Um... Uh, certainly, you know, with that many clients across the country, uh, a lot of people have worked with you and know you that way. But I dare say more people know you by reading your uh, column, your uh, blog that goes out every day of the week called uh, Pots and Pans. Now, for those who are not, uh, you know, that's that's some old school language there. Uh, tell us what those uh, what that acro- those acronyms mean. Yeah, that, that's that's some that's some very old school language. So POTS is plain old telephone service. So we started this business in 1997 when the FCC uh, allowed people to get into telephone com, uh, competition. So that's sort of where we started. Obviously, nowadays we do broadband and telephone's a minor thing, but but our background is is working for telephone companies way back when. So yes, sir. Well, that. Uh... That column, that uh, article goes out across uh, social media as well as uh, through email. Um, I bet you get a lot of feedback on that. How uh, 
Do you have any idea how many folks are seeing that now? The most I've ever had read a column was forty or fifty thousand people. I think on most days I'm reaching two or three thousand. So, so I, I got a lot of readers. Yes, sir. Wow. Well, uh, you, you you touch on so many uh, subjects. I mean, just just in the last few weeks, I mean, I've read about five G and micro trenching and quantum encryption. I'm like, this guy knows about something about everything. What? Uh, you know, as, as someone who, you know, I write the occasional blog post for our company as well. And uh, I'm always fascinated how you come up with something to write about every day of the week. And uh, it's curious, uh, how much time, how much time do you spend researching and, and writing these articles? Actually, not a whole lot. When I first started this, I started, my wife suggested that I told her I was having trouble keeping up with the industry. Because this is a hard, you know, there's a million things to keep up with, right? Right. She said, why don't you write a blog? Because that'll just make you go out and do the reading, right? Uh, and so I did. Oh, boy, in the old days when I first started this thing, man, it was hard. Um, you know, but I read all the stuff like everyone else does that comes across your desk. Nowadays, I, I write a blog in about 15 minutes. So, I mean, it used to be a torturous long process, so. Mm. I think it's the old practice to get perfect. You know, I can write quickly these days, but I did not start that way at all. So, um, mm. so yeah. So, but I've been doing this now since 2013. So, you know, you kind of get good at it after a while. So, well, you certainly uh, piqued my interest with a recent article entitled "What Does an Administration Change Mean for the FCC?" And um, that's that's really what uh, caused me to reach out to you and say, let's let's get on and talk about this because. Certainly a very timely topic as we're sitting here. Uh, we're recording this uh, right before Thanksgiving. So uh, there is a assumed president-elect, although not a concession yet. But uh, So there's there's a little bit of uncertainty out there. But the general assumption is we're, we're moving toward a change in administration. And we don't always think about how that ripples out and uh, how that can impact something like uh, rural broadband. So I thought we'd take this as, uh, you know, maybe one of those prediction interviews and, you know, we might come back in three or four years and see how spot on Doug was and some of these things. But uh, before we dive into some of the points uh, of your article about the FCC, uh, set the stage, if you would, for our listeners uh, for the role of the Federal Communications Commission and uh, help us better understand the impact that the FCC has on things like the availability and even the quality of broadband in rural America. Sure. Um, you know, the FCC is like any any regulatory body, and, of course, they exist in all sorts of industries, trucking, and, I mean, there's probably, you know, 50 regulatory agencies in the U.S., mining, all sorts of stuff. And a regulatory agency, by definition, has to balance the needs of the industry that they're regulating and the general public. So there's always the two sides to every, and that's why they're created. Typically, a regulatory agency is created when an industry is sort of running over the general public. And so, you know, you go way back to Teddy Roosevelt, and that's when a whole lot of this stuff got started. You know, there was a lot of monopolies, and it's like, well, gee, we got to find a way to curb these monopolies, and you do that with regulation. And so, uh, so regulatory agencies have this very interesting balancing act where they have to try to to do things that they actually try to benefit their industry. They don't want to cripple them. They want to do things in favor of the industry, but at the same time, they don't want the industry to do things that, that harm the public. And so, so they're always trying to find that middle ground and the perfect FCC or the perfect regulatory agency of any kind 
looks at every issue, balances the two sides, and makes the best decision they can make. And so, and so the SEC got started to regulate telephone service because way back in, in 1932 when they got started, that's what there was. And of course, at that time, the giant the giant company was AT and T, uh, the old Ma Bell, and so they they were created to sort of regulate them. But even then, there were almost there were I think in, way back in the 30s there were maybe 1,500 or 2,000 other telephone companies as well. So they regulated them all. And of course, over years as technology changed, they they simply picked up anything that was related to to telecom. So they really you know they regulate cell phones and cable TV. Nowadays, they regulate satellite broadband. They regulate supposedly regulate broadband, which we'll probably talk about here in a minute. If it, if it comes along and it's in that field of communications, uh, what happens is anytime there's a controversy, like if somebody makes a lawsuit against a topic like one of the big carriers, the courts will send that topic to the FCC. They get half of their work handed to them by courts. They go, courts, we don't decide this kind of stuff. That's a regulatory issue. And boom, off the topic goes to the FCC. So so that they exist there for the whole broadband industry. Nowadays, we—I mean, now we call it the broadband industry, not the telecom industry, really anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that's their role: is to make up rules. They have the ability to make rules the companies have to follow. They have the ability to resolve disputes, and that's disputes between the players in the industry. Also, disputes between the players in the industry and consumers. They will step in and go, you know, you're overbilling these folks. You have to stop it, or they'll come into two carriers and and resolve a dispute on how they're doing something. So. And so that that's their natural role is to is to sort of be the policeman of the industry, um, and, but they're the policemen who also get to write the rules, which is interesting. Now, the one limitation on that is that their charter is established by Congress, and so Congress sort of tells them how far they can go. So, so the the Telecom Act, there's been two major Telecom Acts, one in 1932, one in 1996, and then between. Congress passes a law or two every year based that has something to do with telecom. So all of those laws together are tell the FCC what they can and cannot do, uh, but they get to interpret that and they push and, and they push those limits. They will, you know, and what what you find is some FCCs are more in favor of the big companies and other FCCs over the years have been more in favor in the public. And so they take those laws given by Congress and they interpret them under their own little filter of, of what they want the, the telecom world to look like. So, it, uh, But this is, you know, the FCC is just like, you know, the people who regulate drugs or trucking or any other industry. They All of them do exactly the same sort of thing. So. Okay. Well, one of the issues that the FCC uh, deals with that has certainly impacted, uh, well, broadband in general, but particularly, I think, uh, rural broadband is the definition of broadband itself. Um, currently, the FCC definition of broadband is 25 down and, and three up. And uh, this definition is real important because, you know, often it guides uh, grant and uh, loan awards. So uh, in your estimation, Doug, does this, does that definition of broadband speeds disadvantage rural areas, particularly those that are, like seeing broadband come to their communities for the first time in the in the last few years. It's interesting because that's actually one of their newer responsibilities. There was a a law passed in Congress that said that the FCC had to report back the state of broadband every year to Congress. 
And so as they started to figure out over a couple of years after the law was passed about what it means to to report on the state of broadband, they found that they had a hard time doing that unless they could define what broadband was. So the first couple of years, they, they didn't have a speed definition. So they came up with, they eventually came up with a speed definition that was four megabits down and one megabit up. And, and about in 2015, they came and revised that definition to 25 megabits down and three megabits up, saying by creating that definition, what they said was, that's what broadband is. Something that's less than that is not broadband. It's it's you know it's just it's inferior service, and anything that's at that speed or faster is broadband. Well, broadband has been growing so rapidly that you know the the the, the demand for speeds and, and the amount of broadband we use grows at the rate of twenty to twenty five percent a year, and and so we now quickly outstrip those definitions. So from twenty fifteen to now, that actually probably was not a bad definition in twenty fifteen, but. But now, if you just take that definition and grow it by 25% a year, we probably, the definition of broadband download should probably be 125 megabits, just because that's where we're at. And sure enough, if you look out and you look at the guys who measure it nationwide, that's about where the average broadband speed is in the U.S. Because in the cities, the cable companies have increased their speeds, and that's what, what they offer people for the most part is 100 megabits or faster. Uh, and so... And so they they've sort of left the rural areas behind. It's a very interesting dilemma because they the, the FCC for the last three years has has looked at and, and rejected increasing that definition. And that's I hate to say it, but it's somewhat it's political. It, it's not political as in parties. It's political as into not making themselves look bad. Honestly, if they raise the speed of broadband, let's just say they take it from 25 megabits to 100 megabits, all of a sudden. All the people who have speeds between 25 and 100 would be classified on that day as no longer having broadband. Mm-hmm. And so they don't want to come to Congress and go, well, last year there were 14 million people without broadband. This year there's a, this year there's 100 million people without broadband. And so that's really what stopped them from raising that limit. And, and, and when they first said it, I don't think they foresaw that. They didn't, you know, broadband wasn't, it wasn't growing so crazily rapidly that, that they had that dilemma. But, now you could examine it every year, literally. It's it's just, you know every year it's twenty percent faster than the year before, right? So, um, so they have a, they have an ongoing dilemma. And if no matter what they do and set that speed, and two or three years after that, it's going to be obsolete again. And and so you know they they're going to have to find another way to do this because they're never going to. No FCC is going to have the courage to put out a true definition of broadband. Interestingly, it's, the the answer is easy. If 80% of the people in the country live in cities and can get fast broadband, rural folks ought to have the same right. Mm. That ought to be what their goal is, right? Right. And it's not, right? The problem is, you put your finger on the problem. The problem is they hand out grants that build the slower technologies. If they just if they just didn't do that, if grants weren't tied to that definition, then we really wouldn't have a big issue about this. I mean, we don't really care what they tell Congress, right? Um, we do care in that that helps us set policy. But Congress gets feedback from a whole lot of us telling them that we, our broadband isn't fast enough. So they they know all about the dilemma in rural America. Uh, but, but you know, unfortunately, the FCC turns around, even in this latest auction that just is in the process of closing, there are ISPs allowed even today to bid on federal money to help build broadband that only delivers 25 megabits per second. And that's somewhat crazy. I mean, that's that's simply not fast enough for a household anymore. So, 
Uh, mm. So th- that definition, unfortunately, if it wasn't tied to grants, I don't think we would care much at all. So, so you're seeing real life issues where uh, a community, uh, a rural area in particular, is is disadvantaged in that inadequate broadband networks are being built just because they're meeting a minimal standard. Yeah, well, there was a grant process last year called the uh, reverse auction for CAF2 where FCC gave money to Viacom, you know, the satellite company, mm-hmm. uh, to, to serve some of those areas. Well, that stuff was already available to everyone who lived in those areas, and but they gave them federal funding to, to do, uh, we don't know what, since they could already sell there. Uh, but, and the bad news is the FCC then goes, that area is now served, and they checked it off of the list of places that needed help. Well, those folks didn't get anything new, and they didn't get anything that was fast. And there's such an amount of delay called latency, and, and high, these satellites are 20,000 miles over the Earth that nobody likes it. Uh, so, yes, so that the, that definition translated into a very bad policy, it turns out. So um, if they would have just not allowed satellite companies to get that money, that would have not have happened, but they mm-hmm. did. So. Well, this FCC tends to... Uh tends to be technology agnostic when it comes to delivering uh, grants and loans. Do you think that's a, a good policy, or should we be looking at particular types of delivery uh, systems? Well, here's the problem you get into. You know, when they give a, these, like the current grants being given out right now, the companies have six years to build it. So you're really saying, here's what I'm going to fund you to build six years from now or five years from now. And so you should be building for a technology that's going to fit what households need then. And so if you pick something that was good 10 years ago and you're going to let it be six years ago, that's a 16 year gap. It's like, nah, that stuff's not cut. It's just not fast enough. You know, we don't have enough federal money to solve the whole broadband problem. So we just shouldn't, shouldn't give it out to technologies that don't solve the issue. Hmm. areas we better serve to get no funding than to get funding for a bad technology. So the answer is yes, there, you know, there are technologies that should not be funded. Um, there's not a lot of them, but there are some, we shouldn't be, we still, we shouldn't be funding high satellites. We certainly should have not be funding DSL. I mean, these are obsolete technologies. Mm-hmm. There are still grants going out for fixed wireless, but if they're built correctly, they can do hundred megabits per second. I don't have a problem with funding those technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 you know, we should at least stop funding stuff that can't, can't satisfy today's broadband demand. So do you think a, an FCC under the Biden administration will take another look at that, uh, definition? You think we'll see a change there? I think that a new FCC will certainly be under pressure to relook at the definition, but they're going to have the same old dilemma of, you know, do they have the courage to reclassify millions of homes as not having broadband anymore? Mm-hmm. Uh, a change of administration may not mean a, a braver FCC. We're going to have to find out. So they are still regulators, and <laughs> you know, so, so I mean, right. the, the FCC is like most regulatory agencies, and they don't directly report to the administration. They are independent agencies, so they they feel a lot of pressure from the administrations. They they tend to have the people picked who run it. You know, the, the new FCC chairman would be picked by the, the new administration, but that's only one person voting out of five. That doesn't necessarily mean that person gets their way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they tend to, they tend to, FCCs tend to 
trend towards that administration, but they don't always do everything they want. And in fact, sometimes they don't do a lot of what they want. Mm. Um, they are, they, 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 they do feel a sense of, of independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but we know that, you know, there's something that I call the regulatory pendulum. It's been around forever. It's not just telecom. It's all these agencies. Over time, agencies will drift either towards the public or towards the big companies that they regulate. And, and when that happens, when they get too far in either direction, there's pushback. There's pushback by the public or pushback by Congress, and they tend to then swing back the other direction. This particular FCC we are just in right now has been the most pro-large company FCC we've ever had. And so a new administration is going to push them back the other direction. It's going to, you know, we've sort of ignored privacy issues and net neutrality and things that regulate that the public want in favor of what the big companies want. This is not the first FCC that's been pro-big business, but it really went very far in one direction. That always means pushback, and that always means it's going to swing in the other direction. What we don't know is how much in the other direction. It could still be very much a pro-big business one and just start paying more attention to the public. Again, the perfect FCC is right in the middle. They're not pro either one of them. You know, that would be a big change just to get back to that. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see how far back they swing. But there's no doubt that there will be a new chairman who will be less pro-big business. So So the current chairman, uh, Pai, he was appointed uh, to the FCC by a Democrat president, and he was named chairman by a Republican president. Right. You think there's and, and any that chance? Ha- that always happens. But by definition, there has to be three Democrats, three of one party and two of the other. So who, whatever administration is in gets to make sure that their their party has three. But there's always two people of the other party as well. And as people leave the FCC, uh, then you know they they fill in those holes, whether that's Democrat or Republican. So probably half the people who've ever been on the FCC have been appointed by the other party. That's pretty normal. So. Um, and then, you know, the, a new, the new administration could pick one of the two Democrats that are in there for the chair, or they could bring in an outsider as the chair. And that's, you know, that's the choice of the administration. So, so there's, uh, you don't see much of a chance of, uh, a pie staying on uh, the commission under a Biden the chair, the chairman's all the chairman's, they, they have the option to drop back to be one of the two lower people. They don't do that. That's not good for their career. Right. Um, they, he w- he wouldn't have to leave because there is a there is a Democrat or Republican FCC person who is leaving, and so he could take his slot probably if he wanted to. But they just, you know, having been the head of the FCC is good for your career. So he will probably move on to make more money. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but he but he could stay. But I, I, no one has done that. I, no one's ever done that. So yeah. So uh, you have any thoughts, any predictions for us on who might assume that chairmanship? Oh, the rumors are running around the industry. It'll probably be somebody who's been assigned with the, aligned with the FCC before, but you never know. The, you know, the last head of the FCC came out of left field, and no one had expected him at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. So, I'm, there's yeah. lots of names being floated around, but they're being floated around by industry people like me. We, have, we don't know what, what the new president might want to put in there. So. Who's on the short list? Do you have any names you can share with us? One of the names I heard was Giggy Son. The other would be to to promote one of the two existing Democrats. So you know, but mm-hmm. there there's a really high chance that it's, it's someone completely that we haven't even thought of before. Who mm-hmm. knows? So. Yeah. So far, the names that we're hearing uh, from the uh, Biden administration on 
you know, cabinet level positions are not, you know, household names. So they are not, they are absolutely not. And in fact, I had to go look every one of them up. <laughs> right. So that, that very well may happen with the FCC. And in fact, that would not be unusual for that to be, you know, fresh blood. So it very well, very well could happen. So. Right. Right. You mentioned uh, net neutrality earlier. Uh, now, uh, FCC uh, Chairman Pai took a very different approach uh, to net neutrality than his uh, predecessor. Help our listeners understand what that is and what the current FCC has done uh, regarding net neutrality, what their stance is, and talk a little bit about what direction the new one might go and what challenges they might see. Well, net neutrality in general is the concept that... that um, ISPs, people that, you know, the companies, Comcast and AT&T and all the folks that, that provide broadband, won't discriminate among bits. They will treat all parts of the Internet the same so that everything will flow to people. If I want to use something, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have a harder time getting connected to service A versus service B. That's a pretty simple concept. And in fact, even the big carriers didn't have a real problem with it. And you know, the, the president of Charter and AT&T said, you know, we can live with it. They, they didn't really hate it. And what the current FCC did was they sort of used the net neutrality issue to do something much larger and that they have completely written the FCC out of regulating broadband. And so, so they, they, there's something called Title II, which is what authorizes the FCC to regulate something. And they, and they made a classification that the broadband is not a Title II service. And, and so what, the, what this FCC did was they completely handed off the regulation of broadband to the Federal Trade Commission, which doesn't really regulate. They are actually not a regulator. They are, they are, a, uh, they are more like a court. They only punish really bad behavior, but they don't write rules. And so, um, and so the FCC, they, but they, they framed that as it was net neutrality battle, but it was really a battle to get rid of regulation. So this FCC currently, when I told you earlier that the FCC, for instance, gets in between disputes between consumers and carriers, they don't do that anymore. They they abolished their, their dispute. People used to be able to go, Comcast did blah, blah, blah to me, and the FCC would write a letter to Comcast on your behalf and go, you really shouldn't do that. Could you talk to this guy and straighten it out? And, and you know, Sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't, but, but you know, normally, uh, you know, carriers listen to the FCC. They, you know, they didn't want to get embarrassed by doing, you know, because corporations are huge and employees do things in corporations that maybe the corporation doesn't necessarily agree with. Uh, and so, the, you know, that was a way to sort of get little problems fixed, but sometimes they were big problems, you know, that there was the big problem where the, you know, where Verizon had cut off all the phones firefighters during one of the big forest fires. Yeah, so sometimes those are not small issues. But the FCC went so far to get rid of broadband that they got rid of that regulatory role. They do not regulate broadband as a, as a, as a product line anymore. What they are left with are the little bits and pieces like picking the speeds of broadband because that was set by a different law. But, they, but the actual broadband issues, they no longer regulate disputes between, you know, AT&T and some underlying carrier. They don't regulate disputes between people and, and Comcast. They don't set broadband rules. Uh, so they, they, they use the net neutrality issue to get rid of it. The new FCC is almost likely to try to bring that back, but they have their work cut out for them because there's a very defined process to do anything at the FCC, like all regulatory agencies. And so they have to go through hearings. 
and, and write pr- projected rules and then hear from everybody. And so there's a two or three step major process to go through to try to put broadband back to be regulated and try to bring that neutrality back. And then after that's done, invariably there will be lawsuits. And so there's another year or two added to the process because whoever, you know, AT&T or somebody is not going to like what the FCC decides. And so the courts will eventually decide if the FCC had the authority or not. And so that means it's going to probably take three to three years probably minimum for the FCC to just get back to where the old FCC was. So for them to put those rules back in place, they probably won't be able to go faster than three years just because of the processes. And there's, there's the only way to, sh- to shorten that would be for Congress to pass a new telecom act, which is just is not likely. Even if we ended up with, even if you had a Congress with both uh, parties in the same house, they still don't do telecom acts. There could have been a telecom act in this current administration. They had both the, the House and the Senate for the first years, they can, they can never get agreement on telecom issues. Telecom issues are not really bipartisan. And so they, they always have a hard time, even with one party being in charge, to get an agreement on how to change anything. So mm. so it's probably going to be up to the FCC to put it back slowly because, you know, the chances of getting a telecom act are, you know, really tiny. Yeah. Um, so, um, hmm. Well, another issue that the FCC deals with that, is also impacting uh, rural broadband consumers is the issue of mapping. Uh, tell our listeners a bit about how, how mapping has been addressed in the past, some things that have um, the FCC has done to tweak some of that and really what shape we're in right now and how that's impacting the delivery of rural broadband. Sure. Mapping also came in back earlier. I said they had to decide what to tell Congress when they decided what to tell Congress, they said, well, we have to go out and find out what carriers are doing before we can tell Congress about it. So they put in this data gathering process, which we're now calling mapping, but it's really not. It's a, it's a database. And, and what they do is twice a year, carriers have to tell them where they cover geographically. And they do that by census blocks today. So are you in this, you know, and there's a whole lot of census blocks that those are, they cover anywhere, anywhere from 50 to 150 homes, little tiny parts of the country. And, then, and a carrier will come and go, yes, I serve in that area. And then they have to tell them the technology they use and the speeds that they offer. Well, that's completely self-reported by the carriers. And what a lot of them do is they put in their marketing speeds. You know, DSL providers for years have said, we sell speeds up to 25 megabits. On rural areas, they may only deliver two megabits, but they still report 25 in there because there's no rule against them doing that. And so... So we have this database that's used to measure what's actually been done in the world, and it's full of a lot of exaggerations from the carriers. Sometimes they're just out and out lies. I mean, there's carriers in there who say they offer a gigabit who don't even offer 10 megabits. <laughs> I mean, you're you're allowed hmm. to go in that database and put in there whatever you want, and and we and there's there's some really ugly examples of that. There's a company in New York who who basically declared that the whole state of New York had gigabit broadband mm. uh, a couple of years ago. And the FCC put it in their annual report and then got embarrassed when someone pointed it out to them that that wasn't true. So, um, so you know, so that database is highly flawed. Carriers are claiming coverage in areas they don't actually serve, but more importantly, they're claiming speeds that they don't actually have. And so the reports made to Congress, there's been estimates that, they're off by as much as 100%. Where if, if the FCC says there's 12 million people without any broadband, it could be twice that high. 
because of the flaws in that data gathering process. So the new FCC is going to fix it. Well, the current one started to fix it. They've, they've pushed off fixing it time after time, but it looks like it's finally getting moving. But So they're going to get rid of a coverage area issue by making you draw what they're calling polygons, actually draw lines around your customers. Forget the, de- the, the census blocks, because the current census block says if one customer in there has it, then they just assume everybody has it. Well, that's that's usually not the case. That one customer may be a business and no one else has a good broadband. Mm-hmm. So they're going to get rid of that. And they're, they're supposed to draw lines around customers. But currently with the new plans, they're still not making them be honest with the speeds. So it may not be any better. Um, again, if that was only being used to report to Congress, that would be fine. But they use that. They're actually using that to decide who gets grants and who doesn't get grants. So there's entire counties that on those databases show having really good broadband who have absolutely terrible broadband. They are not being considered for federal grants. So that has to get fixed. Um, it's such a bad problem that they, there's a, another big grant program to increase rural um, coverage for, for wireless. And it's been put on hold now for two years because the data is so bad. And I mean, who knows when they're finally going to release it because they, they don't want to give the money out to areas that don't need it. So, Hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it's a huge problem because and that one's hurting people for and absolutely hurting people. I mean, I, I've worked in a dozen counties in the last year who the FCC maps, they have good broadband coverage. One of the counties, we couldn't find anyone who even had 10 megabit broadband and the whole county, in the FCC database showed they had a hundred megabit broadband. Hmm. I mean, the, the, the problems are so exaggeratingly terrible that. And that county did not get any money out of this recent round of, of federal funding. And so, you know, they're simply being blackballed because of the bad reporting by the ISPs. And that's not necessarily even the big company ISPs. You know, the big companies exaggerate. The, the SL guys exaggerate. But some of the worst reporting comes from little ISPs. So simply for what, whatever reasons that we can't figure out, you know, put in really high speeds in the database. So, hmm. so it's, a, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, the state of Georgia did their own map, and they they essentially found twice as many people without broadband as the FCC map. So. Wow. Mm. Well, the FCC is wrapping up, as you said earlier, the auction for the RDOF, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Have, uh, have we heard any news this week? about how the auction is going? No, it, it, it's going to, it's going to, it's even after, it's going to be over uh, this week for sure. They said they actually want to wrap it up by Thanksgiving and I think it will. Okay. Uh, we probably won't find out the winners for a couple of weeks. They don't, you know, they don't announce that immediately. So, but we'll find out who they are. Even then it's not always obvious who they are because sometimes folks file um, in these auctions under a partnership name, and it may turn out the year, the year later we find out that's AT&T or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so you know, sometimes it, sometimes it takes a while to figure out who the real winner is, but most of them are directly under carrier names. But, um, there's a whole lot of speculation about, you know, how much the big cable, you know, we think maybe Charter bid for a bunch. We'll find out. You know, that's right now that's just speculation. We, you know, there's all sorts of players in there that we're going to have to wait and see what they did. So. When talking about uh, delivering broadband uh, to rural America, there are some people who say, well, we need to forget this um, this real expensive fiber-to-the-home concept. That uh, These are high-quality networks, of course, but you know, 5G is going to be everywhere soon, and uh, 
we'll just connect everyone wirelessly, right? What What is the right answer to that question? Well, 5G is a is an interesting technology, but it's always going to be an urban technology. All the great bells and whistles that come from 5G come from using multiple frequencies and having cell sites that are close to each other. And so in urban neighborhoods, I live in a town, Asheville, North Carolina, 90,000 people, no doubt that we'll eventually get all this stuff. And, and so there will be cell sites every, you know, three, four or six blocks. And, and so, you know, when I pick up my phone to do something, I'm going to probably see three or four or five of them, or today I see one. Well, all of a sudden, all sorts of benefits come out of that strength of a, of a wireless network. Well, nobody's ever going to build that in rural America, just like they don't want to build fiber. It takes fiber to support those multiple cell sites, and no one's going to come. You're not going to end up with a cell site per farm. And so 5G is never coming to those kind of places. It, it will it never happen. We may, we may put in 5G software into the rural cell sites that exist today, but that doesn't make them 5G they, because none of the things that are cool about 5G will work when it's just one cell site in a county. I mean, that's not going to help anybody. It's this exactly the same coverage they have today. So. And, and and they won't put in all the really cool frequencies because most of these frequencies go very short distances. There's no reason to put in a frequency that goes a quarter of a mile if you're in a in a, in a rural cell site. Nobody lives within a quarter of a mile of it usually. It's usually up on a hill. So so we're, rural areas are not getting 5G ever probably. That's just not going to happen. And, and and there's no reason it should happen. There's no reason cellular companies would ever try to do that out there. I mean it, it's not. It's it's not a, a good investment for them, and it's not a sensible investment for the rural areas. Um, if if they had enough money to build the five G network, well, they might as well just finish it and put the fiber drops in. So, uh, so that's still the, you know, a lot of rural areas do have fiber today. That's the ultimate network that we know is good for the next hundred years. But it's a lot of money to build them. I'm, you know, it's it's, it's a real dilemma of how we're ever going to get there. So. Well, that, uh, that, that brings me back to something you said uh, earlier and a subject I'd like for us to, to close out on, thinking about the recipe that uh, America needs to follow to ensure that everyone has access to uh, a quality connection, a, a network that is reliable and is robust and can support us in really uh, where we were going. We think that the, uh, the trends that we have been seeing the last few years were uh, were solid and predictable, and the pandemic just accelerated a lot of those uh, work from home and uh, steady increases, as you pointed out earlier in uh, broadband usage. And certainly, we were talking about speeds earlier, and we're seeing that asynchronous uh, approach to a much faster uh, download speed uh, than, than upload is really uh, shifting. That, that that we're, we're needing more upload speed as we're working from home more and, and those sorts of things. And you mentioned earlier that you thought that really there's not enough money, the federal government doesn't have enough money to solve this issue. Looking forward, what is that recipe to get us to the place where we can say as a nation, we've solved the rural broadband challenge? Well, First off, that's the longest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great question. So um, it has to be the combination of federal and state governments. You know, unfortunately, in rural America, these networks don't make sense for a commercial provider to just go to the bank and borrow the money and do it. They, they, there's just not enough revenue to pay for the technology to do that. So it's going to have to be the federal government 
And what I think has happened is, especially with the pandemic, there's no politician in America who has not heard about the problems that we're having because of not being able to work and, and do school from home. And so the issue has now bubbled up to the top of all the politicians' list. And if that stays up high enough, they will find the money. The, the estimates have been uh, that it's you know maybe $100 billion to do this right everywhere, which is a giant number. But you know, but that on on a, on a compared to the cost and the dollars of the day, it was that's way less expensive than when we put electricity into rural areas. Hmm. We, so we've done this once before, and if you take those dollars and put inflation on them, it was it cost a lot more than a hundred billion dollars, and yet we did it because broadband is basic infrastructure. And so, if the if the if the federal government accepts that they need to help, um, then they can. But it has to be done right. You know, there are grants that work and grants that don't work, and we have to stop putting money into grants that waste money and grants that don't don't put in good enough infrastructure. But if we do it right, uh, we you know we can do it. You know, the states have a big role in that too, and, and probably about thirty of the states now have state broadband grant programs, so they have to they have to help too. You know, not every state needs this. You know, there's not a giant you know Rhode Island rural broadband grant because they don't have a lot of rural areas. They have some. But not not enough to have a not enough to have that need. But uh, but the states that really need it have to kick in too. But it, it's going to take government help to make it work. Um, and, and there's no other way around it. You you know if, if a place needs 50% financial help to get over that hump to build it, then that's going to have to happen. Uh, we'll just have to see if 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 the next administration steps up. This may not even be an administration issue. The Congress is. You know, the last couple rounds of funding came from Congress. Congress very well may step up, regardless of who the president is. This is now an important enough issue that that if we have an infrastructure program of any sort to, to rebuild dams and roads, then broadband's going to be in there as well. So, you know, it may just be that that politicians are recognizing that you know they better step up because they're kind of getting tired to go onto the gas station, and that's the first thing everyone talks to them about. Mm, <laughs> very good point. Um, I mean, because it's that hot of a topic now that, you know, I I work in county levels and counties around the country will tell you this is the number one topic. Hmm. This is the number one problem most counties see. It's and that's pretty amazing considering that they have other big problems like opioid use and all sorts of other things. But most of them will tell you that lack of broadband is their number one issue. So. Hmm. Well, we've we've covered a lot of ground, Doug, and uh, I look forward to to coming back and revisiting uh, some of these topics with you down the road and, uh, and, and, and sort of seeing where, where things uh, have developed. Uh, this podcast will sort of be a, you know, we're, we're, we're dropping a pin here and then we'll take a look later on and see how, uh, see how a lot of these things develop. Hope you can come back and join us. Uh, but thanks so much for being on the show today. Be glad to do it. And thank you for uh, chatting with me today also. So. Well, thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the people and the issues shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Stephen Smith, and this program is produced by WordStyle, a content marketing company. Please share this episode with your network and help us tell the rural broadband story. Thanks for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.